This is 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Released twice per month, every episode brings you one step closer to cyber resilience by hearing how IT leaders are practicing cybersecurity. Resources mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes. If you're ready to take your cyber resilience to the next level, be sure to subscribe so you can catch every episode. Well, I want to welcome everyone to the podcast this morning or this afternoon, depending on when you're listening. With me today, I've got Paul Baker from Pluralock, who's going to talk to us about Zero Trust. Really looking forward to hearing the Zero Trust story, specifically from Paul. I've heard him talk about this before. I think he's got a lot of information for us, which we're going to appreciate. Paul, before we get started into the questions, I want you to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and what brought you here today. Hey, everyone. My name is Paul Baker. I'm Director of Cybersecurity at Pluralock. Pluralock is a Canadian company that develops some really cool cybersecurity products. But they're in the general zero trust world. I spend a lot of time talking about zero trust to people, just digging into what it means for them and what actually is it in the real world. Fantastic. Yeah, a great company, a Canadian bread company. We're always proud to see some fellow Canadians pushing the envelope when it comes to cybersecurity and like you said, zero trust. I've got a lot of questions on my mind, Paul. I've heard you explain zero trust before. The term is not new to the industry. It may be new to certain individuals. So can you explain the concept of zero trust in really simple layman's terms? Sure. So why don't we go back a little bit in history and I'll set the scene for where zero trust comes from. So back in the late 80s, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, published kind of one of the first papers on firewalls. That really set the scene for security for an awfully long time. It really got this sort of castle and moat approach to security, a super strong perimeter, keep the bad guys out. But once you break through those castle walls, you can walk around and do what you like. As I said, that remained really the standard approach to security for a long time. And that, of course, was why we see so many breaches, because a wall is not impenetrable. And it wasn't really until the early 2000s when people started to think about deperimeterizing. A lot of that was because there was a big move away from the sort of the slightly older IT corporate setups of mainframes and thin clients, everyone within a building, and into this more sort of complex, distributed, full desktops, hybrid work, cloud kind of world that we live in now. The internet, of course, and the ever-expanding reach of the internet was a huge part of that. Then in 2010, John Kindervag coined the term zero trust in a Forrester research paper. Really, until the last few years, zero trust as a phrase has mostly stayed in the analyst space and not really so much in the corporate security psyche, although many people in security have been looking at defense in depth, which is a very similar thing. So if we fast forward to 2020, NIST, the American Standards, published SP 800-207, which was really the first attempt to try and formalize this zero trust framework of standards and requirements to help define what it really was. Last year, of course, the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, I think it was, mandated that all U.S. agencies had to adopt zero trust principles. So this is a thing that isn't going away. So what is it? One of the common mottos, phrases, whatever you want to call it, associated with zero trust is always verify, never trust. And what it really means is that you need to assume that users and systems and so on are already compromised. And so while that perimeter itself is still, of course, very important, you need to start thinking about how do we limit damage if someone is inside it already? So it's really, it's an approach to security. It's not a specific tool. There's no magic zero trust button you can go and press. And hey, presto, you're protected. You need to go through this whole process of kind of identifying 
really, what is it you're trying to protect? So what's the things that you want to protect? And then start to consider, how do we protect that? And usually you want to start with things at the highest risk to you as an organization, and then find the right tools that, that help you protect those assets. And then you can use the guiding principles in standards like 800-207 or referring to some of the reference architectures that are out there. DOD have released one fairly recently with a whole bunch of zero trust specifications in there. So say, really, it's just a change in concept from let's make the perimeter really strong because the point is really the perimeter doesn't exactly exist anymore. And let's focus instead on how do we minimize damage? Right. How do we never assume that everyone is good and that they're doing good things? Right. Let's assume that every user and every application and every system is compromised and treat them accordingly. Right. Make them prove that they're valid rather than just saying, yeah, you're good. Great. Always verify and never trust. Four important words. And it's 800-207, you said? Is that the 800-207, yep. part of the NIST standard? It's Yeah, it's a pretty good read. Actually, it's a pretty good read. So I'd highly recommend folks go out and take a look through that to kind of get a really good idea of what's expected from Zero Trust. And it's amazing that it's, the concept has been around for a very long time, and we've seen it evolve over time. And again, it's you said it's a principle, right? It's not really a, you can't really call it a framework per se, because there's really no standard for it. It's more of a principle. Yeah, yeah, it's an approach. It's a, way of, it's a way of thinking about security, about thinking about how you secure everything in your corporate environment, whether that's the users, data, applications, systems, networks, the whole lot, really. And given that always verify, never trust ideology or approach, what are some of the biggest challenges organizations are facing today when trying to implement zero trust? Because it sounds like a pretty... S- fundamental or logical approach to it's, securing the enterprise. It is. And I think the biggest hurdle is overcoming paralysis at the start, right? It's such a potential, it's okay. such a potentially huge project because it hits all parts of your business. And I think people don't know where to start. How do we eat this massive elephant of zero trust? You pick up a spoon and <laughs> you start <laughs> scooping. Uh, the key things that, that companies need to make sure is that they have, they've got to have buy-in at board level. Right. There has to be that real drive from the top to say, we're doing this. It's important to our business for all these different reasons. And we need to do it. Right. We need to commit to do it, commit to do it properly. There's not an easy way. There's no zero trust button, as I said. It's got to be, it's got to be done and done properly. Yeah. And there's uh, no easy button, like you said. But and there's no way, there's no way to even determine the actual cost until you dive into it and you start ex- eating. Right? Exactly. Like right. It depends on what you're trying to do. My my recommendation to companies who want who want to go down this path, and it should really be all companies, because let's face it, everyone needs good security, is to really first look at what you care about protecting. Right. What's the crown jewels that represents the highest possible risk to your company if it's breached? It could be something related to your intellectual property. It could be your customer information. Who knows? But that's the thing that you want to focus on protecting first. That's what you care about, right? right. If that piece of information, that data, that system, whatever it is, goes away, that's your business at risk. So those are the things that you really want to focus on first and look at all the different ways that you can protect those because that's going to be your biggest bang for the buck. And as an organization, I think some of the challenges stem from not understanding the priority of the valuable assets they have sometimes, I would say, to be fair. Uh, that that becomes a challenge in itself. So you're right. I think we need to understand what where we prioritize, what's the most important valuable asset you have. And then based on that, then you work your way down. That would be a great start for sure. And you're, I, I like your when you said buy-in at the highest level. You need buy-in at the highest level. And often what I say is you need executive sponsorship. You need someone someone or some team. And oftentimes it's one person. You need to have that one person who's driving the initiative because without that, 
then there's no funding, there, there's really no strategy. And oftentimes it's someone who understands security and of course the business. Totally. Like typically in most companies that's driven from the CISO role. I was about to say, yeah, the CISO role, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that's a challenge in itself because CISOs are overworked, overwhelmed for the most part. They've got a lot of things coming at them right now being thrown at them. Yeah. And I see a lot of times where the CISO is reporting to initially with CIO, and this could be a conversation itself, but reporting to CIO, and then now there's a dotted line to the CFO, and then the operations people want to know what's going on because it's impacting every part of the business. Exactly. It's a critical role. Very critical, very critical. When it comes to zero trust and network infrastructure, is it, what's the, what's an impact on the organization's network infrastructure? What, and is it easy to say what costs are involved with protecting the network? It, that varies depending on what tools you're trying to use and how big a network is and so on. But in terms of impact, if it's done properly, it shouldn't really affect anything in terms of day-to-day operations other than making it more secure. It, it's It should be invisible. And that's either to people or to systems. Is there going to be some cost? Yes, of course. If you have to start buying new tools, there will be some kind of cost involved that. If you need to bring in the services of experts in the field of zero trust, which I, if you're not one, I absolutely recommend you do, right? You can make a huge amount of shortcuts by not having to try and learn everything from scratch yourself. Get someone in that you trust that can advise you on what you've got, that can advise you on solutions that are going to be able to help your particular needs. So definitely do that. But yeah, a lot of companies have tools in their stack already that can help them in this zero trust journey, right? So it may just be a case of better leveraging tools that you already have, in which case it's just some time cost to do that and perhaps learning how to use them better. The tools is definitely part of the equation. And oftentimes we see when you're trying to have a, a culture shift, Paul, and you, obviously I, I welcome your comment here. It's also an, a, a change, a culture change within the organization, right? I think that's sometimes is harder to do depending on what type of organization you're working with. If you're a low tech organization who's not really familiar with technology or you don't use it on a day to day, you see that adoption that rate of adoption sometimes comes down a little bit. And that becomes a challenge in itself, regardless of whatever yeah. tools you have. Yeah. Change change is difficult. (laughs) It's a fact. Change is difficult. And I think the key to that is, is engaging people. It's in helping them to understand why you're doing something. What's the Mm -hmm. benefits to to what you're doing and get their buy-in. If you're expecting your end users, for example, to have to do something different. Yes, you could just mandate it and send out the the note that says, this is what you will do from now on. But I think if you get buy-in, if you get understanding, if you involve them in that process a little bit more, then they become engaged. They become aware that security is a thing that they need to think about. And you just right. end up with, with happier people and better security. It's everyone's responsibility within the organization. Yeah, I, I yeah, agree. Absolutely. I agree. absolutely. And so this leads me to my next point or next question. And you know this really well based on what you guys are doing at Pluralock. Identity access management is obviously a very, a very strong or familiar place for, for you. How does Zero Trust factor in into identity access management? Yeah, I, identity is core to security. Right? It's probably the single most thing that you care about in security is, is are these my users? Right, Their identity links to everything that they do in your systems. And so that's also core to zero trust. If you go and, if you go and look through these reference architecture for it, their ZTA, first couple of required capabilities in that focus on identity. They focus on continuous authentication and things like that. And we find that there's a lot of companies go, oh, we'll protect our identities. We'll put MFA in front of them. That's not zero trust. It's a good thing. I'm absolutely not saying don't put MFA in front of a login, (laughs) but that's not enough, right? You're checking someone again at the door, at that perimeter, and you're not checking them again. So you need to think about how can we remove trust from 
identity as well because it's mm-hmm. relatively easy i say relatively it, it, there are tools to do it in different areas for machine trust and applications and apis and things like that but as soon as you introduce a person it makes it more difficult because you're a human being you're not a, you're not a thing that is that has some specific certificate stamped on your forehead that you can use yeah, yeah. there's so, a, lot, a lot of elements that the human individual obviously the human element brings to the table there, there is the risk. there is and you also need to make sure that it doesn't impact user experience. <clears throat> MFA typically is a, certainly with most MFA implementations, is a thing that a user has to do. So they, they press a button on their phone or put in a code or something like that. And you can't keep making users do that. So you need to try and look at tools that allow you to do that in a way that is unintrusive to the user, but still gives you that continuous ability to make sure that it is that user there, that it is the person behind that that digital credential, right? That certificate, that login, that MFA step up, whatever it happens to be, making sure it's them all the time doing things in your system because you don't want to be saying an hour after they've logged in, it's still them based on yeah. something that's nothing to do with that person. For me, this is the fascinating point about identity access management. And I'd like to, if you can double click a little bit on this continuous authentication mm-hmm. piece, just to help under, understand, because MFA, I think for the most part now, MFA is everywhere, right? You log yep. into your bank, you log into your insurance, you log into any web portal online, chances are you're getting some MFA prompt. But if yep. you don't mind, Paul, and I know you guys do this at Pluralog, so if you can double click on the continuous authentication, because I think it's important for the audience to understand what that means per se. Yeah, So, uh, so MFA is great. Right. At the point that that user logs in and does something, you can get a really strong signal that it is that user. Right. It can be spread across multiple devices. You can use biometric factors to ensure the human being, et cetera. So you have this really good signal at that point in time. But the problem you have is that from that time onwards, you've just become this sign in thing. Right. You've become a certificate or a machine or a location or something like that. And assuming that a user is still that same user after they've logged in, is introducing trust. So if we think about, for example, work from home, right? I can come and log in my home office. I've got my multi-factor. I'm on my corporate managed devices with my TPM chips inside it. I'm in a, a known location. I'm on a known network. I'm using applications that I normally use. But if I go up and get a coffee and my wife or my kids come in and start using my computer, there's nothing that you can see contextually around that's different except the person behind that has changed. So how do you continuously make sure? You need to make sure that it's the right person presenting those credentials and using those credentials through the session. And so continuous authentication is a way of doing that. And there's a few different ways that you can do it. At Pluralock, we do it through looking at how the user physically touches their workstation. So we measure the way that you type and the way that you move your mouse. And then when you're working, we can measure how you're working and use that to make sure it's you doing it. So there's a, you know, you could do it with cameras, you could do all kinds of things. But the key is that you are continuously looking at the user and saying, is this still you? Is this still you? Is this still you? You're not assuming it's me because nothing around the context of me has changed because I can change, right? If I'm in Starbucks and I need to use the washroom in a hurry, what if I forget to lock my machine? Yeah, I'm in my hotel and I've left my laptop in my hotel while I nip out to get some food and housekeeping you're in there. How do you know? So it's that concept of never assuming that it's the user because you checked them at the door. 
right? Walk around behind them, make sure it's them there the whole time that they're operating your systems, because that's when the bad stuff happens. Bad stuff doesn't happen at the point you log in. It happens after you've logged in. Exactly. And it doesn't really, so this continuous authentication notion doesn't really impede user experience or productivity, because really it's not being, it's not being, there's no interaction required. Yeah. If it's done properly, absolutely. Right. It should be completely invisible to the user. You don't want to be impacting the user's ability to do things. Right. So you can't use manual steps, right? You can't use entering a code or putting a finger on a reader or something like that because the user is going to be doing that continuously, right? Every time they're trying to do something new or I'm going to open a new application or open a new file or visit a new part of the network, right? You can't make them reauthenticate every single time because they're going to spend all day authenticating and not actually doing anything, anything productive. Okay. So it's interesting. So yeah, so you've got to do it in a way that doesn't impact the user's ability to get on and, and do their job. So I will push back and I know you can answer this. So that's why I'm pushing back a little bit here because I want to make sure it's clear. Now, when you're monitoring, I got to be careful with the words I use here. So if you're doing continuous authentication, we're talking a lot about privacy now. We're talking about user individual rights. So yep. how do I make my end user base within my organization, 500, 4,000, 5,000 individuals feel safe that this continuous authentication is doing what it needs to do and not doing other stuff? Yeah, certainly at Pluralock, we look at the how, not the what. So we don't, we're not looking at keywords, right? We don't know what you're typing. We don't know what websites you're visiting or what buttons you're clicking on or what documents you're working on. And that's on. the way it should be, frankly. Yeah. We don't, that's nothing to do with us. That's not authenticating you as a human being. We just look at the physical way that you are touching your device. If, if you're a, a reasonably side organization, for example, you probably have a proxy in place for your web connections, right? We are orders of magnitude more privacy friendly than a proxy, right? If you think about what a proxy does, it's looking at every single thing that you, that is leaving your machine. So it knows every page, every application, every piece of data access, it knows exactly what you're doing. If you look at some of these full session recording tools, again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's nightmare. why I wanted to bring that yeah. up. Yeah. Exactly. If you, you know, it's, if you, it's a big topic now. Exactly. And if you look at ones, things like cameras, hey, let's just switch the camera on and watch the user doing their things. Again, massive privacy problems. There's other people in the room potentially, which might be what you care about, of course, but it's, it's some big issues there. So yeah, we are very privacy friendly in that respect. Fantastic. Okay. A couple more questions before I let you go, because I know your time is very valuable and we want to make sure that we make the best use of our time. How does an organization measure the effectiveness of their zero trust implementation? That's not an easy one, right? How do you know if it's working? There's really no, how do you quantify it? It's a, yeah, it's a great question. You can take practical steps, right? Penetration testing, red teaming, security exercises, and so on. And if you have a baseline before you start implementing these things, because you should, right? That should be start of your, part of your process of understanding what you need to protect is knowing what's wrong with what you've got now. So if you do that before and after, you should see a measurable change in those baselines. But I think really it's like most security things, the proof is in the pudding. It's an unfortunate reality that the you have probably already been breached and you don't know it. And if you do know it, you should be looking at ways to yeah. stop that and you understand the impact and the damage that it can cause. And I think the effectiveness is, hey, we haven't been hit by a massive ransomware attack. That's not because you got lucky. That's because you put good tools in place to prevent those kinds of things. 
Yeah, that's, that makes sense. And that, that's definitely an effective way to measure. Right. Reducing the risk is def- definitely hard to quantify, but yeah. not being attacked over X amount of months or X amount of years, I think that's a pretty good measure. Yeah, uh, you're, you're going to be attacked. I, mean, yeah, I apologize. It's, yes, it's you're right. Not it's, being it's, it's how impacted. successful are they, right? It's, it's how successful are they? <laughs> yeah, you know. the attack is going to happen. It's how you've been, how you were able to either recover or not be impacted by it. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Got it. One question, and this might be a tricky one, not sure if it's something we, we can definitely answer for the audience, but when it comes to regulatory compliance compliance requirements in general, when it comes to your particular specific industry, how does zero trust impact or affect an organization? Is that something you've seen where it actually helps, even cyber insurance, let's say, for example, right? Cyber insurance will sometimes ask for certain requirements. What have you seen? How have you seen zero trust positively in fa- impact that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of compliance requirements and regulatory adherence, things like that, it's certainly not going to make it any worse. Realistically, outside of federal government to date, there's very little actual compliance or regulatory pressure to to adopt these kinds of approaches. I think that's going to change because it has to. And whether that's driven by regulators or the insurance companies or someone else, I don't really know right now. In general, I think we see that things mandated by government for government start to flow down into the commercial space. Right. So things like the government start to mandate that if you want to work with the government, you have to adopt these same approaches. We've certainly seen that in the States with things like CMC. Right. If you want to be a supplier to the federal government now, you have to go through the CMMC process. So I think we will see more of that happening. But in general, it's just good security practice. Right. It's make it's making you think about what you're protecting about the impact to your business of that thing being being breached, broken, lost, stolen, whatever it happens to be. And by doing that, you're just massively reducing your risk exposure. You're making things harder, you're reducing risk, and that can only be good for you and your organization. Yeah, and you touched on my, one of my last questions here was the long-term benefits, right, of zero trust, right? I, and you can add on to this, but I think what we're looking for, if you're going to implement zero trust principles or fundamentals, you're looking for what? Improve security, reduce your risk, heighten awareness, Right, all all of those, and really, it, it come it comes down to limiting the damage that could be done to your organization when that breach occurs. Attacks are not going away, and at some point, it doesn't matter what you put in place, a bad guy is going to get in. Right, we've seen that with these, with from the simplest of attacks where it's been a post-it note on a team viewer session spamming people with MFA requests, all these really supply chain type attacks that, that are frankly terrifying. At some point, the bad guys are going to get in and you need to take steps to limit the damage that they can cause. And regardless of anything else around around risk, around insurance, around compliance, that's what it comes down to, right? When it hits the fan, how can we stop that? How can we reduce it? We've had an endpoint infected with malware because a user clicked on a link and they downloaded it and it was a unknown thing and the virus scanned it. It's going to happen. Right. But if you can limit, because you've implemented all these micro segmentation, all these other great tools, if you can limit the damage to that one machine, right, that's virtually zero impact on your business. If you right. haven't put in the, those kinds of controls in place, you are very quickly in a bad place. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And like we said, like zero trust is a principle, fundamental set. Always verify, never trust. Those are the four big words we've learned today. Yep. Yep. And frankly, organizations can get started pretty quickly with some basic st- with basic steps. Absolutely. Like I say, just even thinking about what do we really care about, right? What is what's core to our business? What can we absolutely not risk and focus on protecting that the best that you can? And that's going to put you in a good stead. Start with that, right? What really matters to your business? And yep. every business has something really important to them. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Very good. Paul, again, I really appreciate the time we spent today. Do you have any questions for me? Any extra thoughts or additional thoughts before we, uh, we go here? No, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Luigi. How can anybody get in touch with you? Obviously, they can. You can. You can get in touch with you through LinkedIn, through Luigi, or you can right. hit me up at pluralock.com. I'm sure you'll find me there somewhere. Fantastic, Paul. Thank you very much. I know you're helping the community raise the awareness, and I know you're fighting the bad guys every day. So, really appreciate Absolutely. talking to you any time of the day, man. Hey, you're welcome. Great stories again, Luigi. Thanks. Take All care. Right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Assurance IT is in the cybersecurity space, specializing in data protection and compliance. Since 2011, they primarily help mid-sized enterprises in Canada. If you have questions about protecting your data, reach out to us directly at info at assuranceit.ca or visit assuranceit.ca.